Coming up on Golf Today, we know Tiger the player, but what about Tiger the architect? His first design is about to host on the PGA Tour in Cabo, and we have the pictures to prove it. And Celine Boutier just won't stop winning on the LPGA. She went overtime in Malaysia. How many holes did she play? And is she the player of the year? And our roundtable dives into heavy topics like framework agreements, gambling suspensions, and major championship qualifications. Getting down to the nitty gritty on Golf Today. On this Monday, the PGA Tour's annual fall event in Mexico being played at the Tiger Woods Design El Cardinal Course, Diamante Resort, Cabo San Lucas, that's Baja, California. It marks the first time the tour is hosting an event at a Tiger-designed layout. Coverage of the Worldwide Technology Championship starts Thursday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time right here on Golf Channel. Have you enjoyed the FedEx Cup fall? I have. Look at the quality of events, the quality of winners. Saif Tagala getting that elusive first win on the PGA Tour. Colin Morikawa had been a couple of years for him. Players trying to kind of know how their 2024 is going to look like as they set up their season going forward. That seems like a good starting point for golf today. Round table, and we welcome in the pride of Florida's first coast, Ryan Lavner, alongside Joel Beale, a senior writer at Golf Digest. Joel, I want to start with you on this fall series. I know it's kind of a, it's a mishmash. It was kind of patched together as things evolved, as, as the season was kind of taking shape. Do you think it's working? Because we have a situation where guys like Aaron Badley this week, for instance, who is 96th on the FedEx Cup list, desperate for these starts to make his way up. He's not even in the field this week in Mexico. It seems as though there are a lot of changes that need to be made going forward. But to this point, does it work for you? You know, compared to what the fall was, which was essentially a regular season that was treated as a quiet quitting offseason by most of the tour stars, I think confining the fall to its own league of sorts can help this part of the calendar have its own identity. Uh, at least the foundation is there. Um, in execution, though, it's not there yet uh, because what we're seeing this fall is just a byproduct of kind of what you mentioned, making these overarching decisions on the fly without proper one way. Uh, you mentioned badly. I think the Dylan Wu case a couple weeks ago is a perfect example of the current problems with this format. Uh, if the PGA Tour is going to make this a true qualifying stretch, it needs to have the real-time category reshuffles rather than genuflecting to a list that's already out of date by this point of the year. Uh, that's that's the simple fix to me the bigger issue that doesn't have an easy answer is what to do with the players who have already finished in the top 50 of the fedex cup you know those players have earned the right to be here with their play and with money and world rankings on the line it's not like these events are merely practice reps for them um and that same token these players are kind of needed by the events during the fall to help sell and market these events to the public uh, but the presence of these top players kind of undercuts the very reason why we're supposed to be playing in the fall. Um, and, you know, Badley is a good example. We're, we're taking away field spots from guys whose careers could be in jeopardy. So normally I'm very much in a the, the play better camp, but I think this has a little bit more nuance to it. Uh, I think it's a good problem for the tour to have. Uh, I, you know, I think this is going in the right direction. It just, it needs a little time to get where it's going. I'm with Joe. I don't think the, the fall has necessarily worked, at least to this point. Like, like the list of winners has been great. Sahith, Tom Kim, Kyle Morikawa, 
Ludwig Obert lost in the playoff, but this fall series was not designed for those guys. This was supposed to be some cutthroat battle for status, and that hasn't really translated to this point, at least uh, in my viewing experience. You know, it's hard to, at least for me, engender much sympathy or emotion for players who have already had 30 or so cracks to try and secure their status for 2024, or now players who are trying to get into that small category of qualifying for the first two signature events of 2024. That said, you know, I'm looking forward to covering the RSM. That's the new cutoff event for the 125. It's very much going to be like the Wyndham Championship, which always provides that end-of-season drama. I'm looking forward to covering Q School in December with that traditional pathway uh, for the Dreamers and Schemers to get on the PGA Tour. But as currently constituted, no, I think the, the PGA Tour fall is in need of some serious tweaks. Last, speaking of Dreamers, Michael Block, one of the great stories of 2023, earning his way in exemptions this week in Mexico next year in the California desert. Where do you see this story? Because there was a time where the man could have run for president and won by 30 points, but some seem to be wearying of this storyline. Well, look, I, I certainly understand the fatigue. It seems like we're an hour three of, of what should have been his 15 minutes of fame. But he keeps winning tournaments. These tournaments are coming with automatic exemptions into PJ Tour events. He's already earned a spot uh, in the American Express in 2024. Uh, he was the Southern California Player of the Year. He's going to be playing in the Australian Open in a couple months' time. And you're right. Most of the blowback stems from his honored presence on social media. But I don't think it's necessarily Michael Block's fault that his story seems to resonate with influential figures uh, in either sports media or kind of influential uh, folks from the music industry like DJ Khaled. Like, if you don't want Michael Block to be playing in PGA Tour events any longer or you're sick of him, just beat him. Because right now he's, he's, earning a, <laughs> he's earning a spot in these fields and there's nothing you can do about it. Look, I, I, would, I would go a step further. You know, I, listen, since the PGA... Block, blocky mania. It's kind of felt like that 30 year old returning to high school with his letterman jacket and marble reds reminiscing about that district <laughs> title. So many falls ago. Uh, but you know what? The past two years of golf been so fraught with moral dilemmas and existential crisis and greed. Why not just lean in and enjoy this ridiculous man that won't go away? So I think we actually need more blocky. I, I you know, I want his thoughts on the framework agreement. Um, I want him to campaign for the U.S. Ryder Cup captaincy at that page. I, I want him to publicly volunteer to fix the feud between Brooks Kupka and Matthew Wolf. So, you know, let this man keep living the dream. People seem to be enjoying it. I, I'm done being cynical about blocky. Speaking of guys who've been told to go away, last week the PGA Tour suspended two players for violating the gambling policy, betting on professional golf events. They did specify that these players didn't bet on events that they actually competed in, and that's pretty much where the details ended. I'm curious, Lav, where do you think this falls in terms of the, on the transparency scale? Is the tour obligated to actually tell us on what tournaments they bet, the amounts that they bet, whether it was a one-off or, or a pattern of betting? Because when you look back at the Ben Ann suspension a couple of weeks ago, they went out of their way to state that he, the banned substance he took in violating the anti-doping policies was available in cough medicine from Korea. These guys were not given any context as to why the tour arrived at the decision it arrived at. Is more transparency needed here? Yes, and, and that's been a common complaint uh, in regards to the PGA Tour over the past couple of decades. Obviously, these players broke the rules. They're well aware that they broke the rules and they should be punished. It's, it's unfortunate uh, because these two players now have the avenue of Q School that is closed for them. You know, where 
I take issue, I think where you take issue is with the announcement. It was a 104-word press release announcing this suspension, and the only crucial context was that they basically just outlined that these players did not gamble on tournaments in which they were competing. Left unanswered was how many events in which they were gambling, uh, how much were they betting, uh, how are these violations discovered? To me, Amen, in this brave new world, you know, the tour owes it to the tour members and the sporting public to provide the circumstances for which these players were suspended. I actually think it would behoove the PG Tour, in all honesty, to 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 let to let fans know that there's not sort of any rampant impropriety uh, among the players. You know, you're not necessarily making an example of them. If you provide more details, if anything, I think it could be an educational moment for everybody, for the players, uh, for tour officials, uh, for the fans, and for people who want to believe in the PGA Tour product. T totally agree, Lab. I mean, whether the PGA Tour realizes it or not, they just drag two guys' reputations through the mud for something we're not even sure was that big of a problem. Now, I understand this is not just a PGA Tour issue. You know, we've seen dozens of players received suspensions at the at with the National Football League the past two years regarding gambling related issues. Obviously the NBA really sidestepped a, a huge scandal with the referee Tim Donahue a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, I'm from Cincinnati and the town is still mourning Pete Rose's banishment from baseball, but 30 years ago. So gambling is now infused with professional sports and there's no you're not getting that horse back in the barn, right? Uh, so if you're the PGA tour, you have to at least maintain the optics of integrity. But Man, by doing this and not telling us what exactly these guys were suspended for, you're kind of undercutting the very thing you think you're protecting. Um, I, I also think you can make the case these guys are scapegoats for a message the PGA Tour feels like it needs to send its members, which is, hey, we we you cannot get in this realm the way the way the current structure is partnered up. I, I the only thing I'd ask for the PGA Tour is to have the same type of vigilance towards its players, toward the fans. We've seen in the lab, me and you, the past couple of years being out at these events, having fans yell things at certain players regarding gambles or, or wagers they've made on these players. I wish the tour would have the same type of vigilance towards towards the spectators. Laugh, how about the optics in this situation, considering the PGA Tour has a partnership with DraftKings. It's the official betting operator, brick-and-mortar shop right next to TPC Scottsdale. Can you imagine what that scene's going to be like a couple months from now? How difficult is balancing the optics while also handing out these suspensions while having a relationship with betting operators? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a, a murky new world that the PGA Tour is, is trying to navigate through in, in real time. You, you mentioned the player integrity program. You mentioned the tour sponsorships. To me, a, a big one is the prospect of having an injury list like other sports do if it, so Mavin McNeely is playing this week uh, in Cabo. It's his first start in five months after shoulder surgery. He was playing much of the fall while having a torn ligament in his shoulder. Should that sort of information have been made known public so gamblers can make the best decision? Those are sorts of those are the sorts of calls that the PGA Tour I think is going to have to make as it sort of modernizes its product and gets in line with the NFL, the NBA, and the other major sports organizations. Joel, this is an interesting argument here. As Billy Walter says, he's in the information business, not in the gambling business. And in the course of being at a, a tour event and credentialed at a tour event, that information comes to people, which is why the tour's integrity policy is applies to players, to agents, to caddies, to trainers, anyone who's in that orbit. 
Is there any reason why it shouldn't apply to media as well? Why should golf media, who are potentially going to pick up the same information in the course of their work, why should they be exempt from that and instead of being told you can't bet on what you know from the inside as well? I think they shouldn't be exempt. Just the exact moment or the exact situation as you mentioned. If you're going to be in this world, you need to refrain from any gambling type of endeavors. And I know that's tough given that so much of media right now has either a gambling sponsorship or gambling advice. It, it's a it's a new world, but it's a, it's a tricky world and things can go sideways really quick. And I'm with you. I think that these same things should apply to the media. Um, and if I, if I seem a little scattered, I was just, I can't believe that Block hasn't received a DraftKings ad yet. <laughs> so that's, that's <laughs> Just you wait, just you wait. Joel and Lad, I want to ask you to stick around. I want to dive into the framework agreement, talk about the live golf. Golf Today is back after this. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Back on Golf Today, continuing our roundtable discussion on this Monday with Ryan Lavner and Golf Digest senior writer Joe Beal. Lav, I want to start with you. The story about the organizers of the Masters and the Open downplaying suggestions that they might be carving out major championship exemptions for live players. What should we know? Well, I think there's two different scenarios in play here, Damon. I think when you start with the Masters and Masters chairman Fred Ridley, he said he does not anticipate any changes being made to the qualification criteria for the 2024 Masters. That'd obviously be significant because as of right now, just five live players would be exempted to all four major championships based primarily on the recent major championship performances. That was one window of opportunity that I think a lot of players were anticipating that they could make some concessions and not just rely solely on the world ranking. But that doesn't appear to be the case as it pertains to the Open Championship. There's been some, uh, uh, there's been a report in the Telegraph at least that that uh, the PIF and uh, the RNA, Martin Slumbers, were in discussions about potentially carving out uh, a qualification criteria exemption for live players as well. Uh, Martin Slumbers said that that was, quote, completely off the mark uh, and that any discussion of the qualification criteria for next year's Open at Royal Troon are premature. They're still very much in discussions on what that's going to look like, uh, and we should anticipate some sort of announcement in early January, to me, Joel, this was significant because you look at some of the players who are relying on this. Taylor Gooch, who just banked more than $35 million in live earnings. He's currently outside the top 200 in the world ranking. The optics of not having him in any of the, the major championships 2024, that now does seem like a real possibility. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's certainly significant, but also not surprising. These, the... OWGR just came down with this decision not to award live world ranking points going forward. 
these are the same people that run the open championship, run the masters, run the U S open, run the PGA championship. It also worth mentioning that live basically brought an antitrust probe against many of these governing bodies, the fallout, which these governing bodies are still dealing with. So these, these groups are now in no hurry to do live golf a solid. I know it behooves them in their best interests to have the best fields possible, but we're really not talking about that many people, at least guys who matter, who are going to be missing these events. The guys who do matter at live are already qualified for the majors. This is, this is something that I, I feel like is not that it's a nice headline, but for the most part, I, I don't see this having that big of an effect going forward. And there's also the whole issue, guys, with the fact that Liv is not in any way compliant with any of the OWGR restrictions out there. Joel, the Liv season has just wrapped up. Do you see any possibility of a player of significance making the jump before the start of their next season? Greg Norman promised that that would happen last year. Instead, he got a handful of also rounds. There were some rumblings last week that Liv was meeting with, again, some prominent players over the course of the last week to make the same pitch has been made before. Do you see any potential needle mover making that jump given all of the uncertainties these days? I do not. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe a big name kind of etching towards that, you know, year 40 or, or guys who are no longer com competitive maybe making the jump. But given the world ranking decision, I can't see <coughs> a guy who's prime, who still values competition, making that leap unless they decide it. You know what? I just want to be a barnstormer at this point, if you're done being a gladiator, someone who really cares about competing in week in, week out, you don't make the jump to live at this point. I'm with you, Joel. I could see, I mean, there's a bevy of PGA Tour journeymen who have become disenfranchised with the tour model or being excluded from some of these signature events. I could see that caliber of player making the jump and what could be the final opportunity to, to snag one of those uh, significant signing bonuses that live or the PIF could offer, but a player of significance uh, who actually cares about his legacy in the game and winning significant tournaments, uh, I'm with you. I, I just don't see that happening at this time. Lav, let me come back to you then. With one year under its belt, do you take Live Golf more seriously than you did a year ago, less seriously than a year ago, or about the same? Are they more formidable now or less formidable? I think it's less formidable. I, that's why I think this OWGR decision was so significant because no player who actually cares competing against the very best in the world would make that jump. And so they've essentially been cut off at the knees. And so it's still very much TBD on what Liv will look like in the future. If I was Liv, I'd be leaning full stop, like all the way in on the team element. I would eliminate stroke play what together all, all together I would be uh, eliminating some of these the goofy team names that clearly have not resonated with some of the fans if they're not going to receive <laughs> world ranking points which does not appear that they're even eager to make some of the concessions that the OWGR wants them to do so I would lean into the team element I would make as much match play as possible because right now it just does not translate with the fans there's a reason why the, the ratings have disappeared like no one's watching I'm, I'm with you lab it's not only did they, the world ranking decision really kind of nail nail the coffin of, of Liv's future, but you know one of the, their biggest assets was this antitrust lawsuit. And now with the framework agreement putting that lawsuit to the side, even if this framework agreement doesn't come to fruition, Liv really lost the best weapon in its arsenal. So I, I'm with you. Just lean into the 
match play and, and, and team play, I think there have been some gains by Liv, but compared to where it was this time <laughs> last year, where it was coming off the Cam Smith signing, the fact that no other big names followed, that this this year has been no traction whatsoever. It, I, I'm with you. It's this thing. I think we're counting down the days. I think it's still going to be around next year and probably the year after that. But in terms of being a viable contender to the PGA Tour, I think those days are over. Uh, final question for you, Joe Ogilvy just sent a letter to fellow PGA Tour members last week. He obviously played the Tour for a long time, moved into the finance world since then. It's generally considered popular, smart guy by his peers. And it's unlikely a lot of them read it because it's three pages long and these guys, as we all know, don't actually read much beyond the headlines. It's, but he, he was urging caution in terms of particularly the private equity aspect of what might come in terms of the PGA Tour's deals uh, as it moves forward. Are you looking at that and thinking that this is Joe positioning himself for potential future leadership if it comes up? Or is it a, a good faith warning to players that they really need to exercise some caution here? I think it's more the latter, Eamon. I mean, Joe Ogilvy has made no uh, secret how much he would have relished the opportunity to become PJ Tour Commissioner, but that was uh, basically a, a decade ago. I, I think it's more urging caution and, and making sure that the players uh, maintain control on the board. Right now, you have a 6-4 split in favor of the players with Tiger Woods now uh, having kind of that deciding vote in favor of the players. That's something that they're going to want to maintain regardless of who uh, is going to be providing the financial backing, whether it's the PIF or whether it's some sort of private equity company, making sure that the players have a voice, that their concerns are going to be heard, I think was his most important message. I think that's an important one uh, to make with now two months to go until the deadline, assuming that doesn't get extended, which it very, which it very likely could at this point. My big takeaway of this roundtable, don't get Lav for Christmas a High Flyers T-shirt. He doesn't want the goofy names. Joel, Lav, we appreciate your time. We'll speak to you soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. All right, folks, it took nine playoff holes on Sunday, but Francis Celine Boutier proved victorious at the Maybank Championship. Stellar season she's put together with Players of the Year on the line. A full recap with Beth Van Nichols coming up. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well, then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The LPGA known for some long, sudden-death playoffs. Ten holes in Corpus Christi. Back in the day, 1972, then you see the most recent this past week. I remember G.A. Shin and Paula Creamer going back and forth at Kingsville. And, of course, 2018, remember Pernilla Lindbergh defeating N.B. Park and Jennifer Song. That playoff went eight holes in length. And that's what you call extra innings. Well, with this win, Boudier earned 30 points and moves to first in the Rolex Player of the Year standings. Lilia Vu had led Boudier by 27 points heading into the Maybach Championship. And here are the current standings. And Celine Boudier was asked about this award after her victory. 
I definitely wanted um, to win that award at some point in my career. I definitely did not expect it to be this season. Um, I just feel like it's uh, so hard to just be able to win already and just to be able to, um, you know, have the chance to have this award at the end of the season is something that I definitely don't take for granted. I feel like it's uh, an unbelievable amount of talent on tour and so very happy to be uh, able to lead um, for that award this year. We're joined now by my Golf Week colleague, senior writer Bethan Nichols. Bethan, you've covered this game a long time. Here we have a situation with the LPGA's Player of the Year being a points-based race with no kind of sentiment involved in it at all. You have Celine Boutier leading a two-time major winner this year in the points race. Is Does the points system actually work in your mind or should it have a little more variability in it? No, I love it, Eamon. <laughs> actually, you know, I think you're always going to have some controversy, whether it's a vote or a points-based system. No, it's not like everyone's always going to have a unanimous uh, agreement on who should be player of the year. But, you know, I just love that it, it's all objective. You know exactly what you have to do. Lilia Vu knows what she has to do at the end of the season to get it back and overtake Celine Boutier. Now, obviously, two major championships is is an incredible year on itself without anything else. And she's, she's won an additional tournament in Thailand as well. But, but I still think that, that, you know, taking about any opinions, any popularity contests, I just think this is the way to go. I, I like that the LPJ has done it like this forever. What do you notice Beth that about Celine Boutier's route to this season? It took a little while, not necessarily to find her feet, but to start becoming a regular winner on the LPGA Tour. She's a little bit of a later vintage, getting into her late 20s now. Yeah, she's going to turn 30 soon, which, you know, is old on the LPGA. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just, I, I, I love that, that we have this model for players because Celine Boutier was a, a top rank. She was number one player in the world as an amateur. She was a top player at Duke. Absolutely lost her game completely as a senior at Duke. You know, finished dead last at the NCAA championship. I have vivid memories of her crying every day at that championship. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, is this player going to make it? And turns out she was having mild panic attacks over the golf ball on, on the course and went to her, her swing instructor, Cameron McCormick, sent her to a sports psychologist. And, and she battled her way through the Epson tour and, and she came out on the LPGA. And she's just now, as you said, hitting her stride. And this is not a player that's going to turn her on the driving range you know there's nothing that celine does that's absolutely spectacular and you know blows you away it's just this beautiful consistency and she's she's hitting the ball so well right now her putter's obviously working but as she said she had a lot of tap-ins last weekend in malaysia which will always do it for you but uh, you know, you, you look at her her stats, her driving accuracy is improved, but but she only hits it, I say only, but she's, she's you know, over number like 103, I think, on, on driving stats in terms of distance. She hits it about 253 yards on average. So not a power player. Again, something I think that the young players can look to who, who may have a physique or a game similar to Celine. Speaking of veterans making some news, Annika Sorenstam, now in her early 50s, made some news last week, Bethann, a new member of Augusta National Golf Club. Any surprise in that for you? 
Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I eventually it had to happen, right? <laughs> I, I mean, whether it was Annika or someone else, there had to be an LPGA pro that would become a member against the national. I think we all thought maybe, maybe Annika or Nancy Lopez, I would love to see an American, uh, LPGA pro be a member of Augusta national as well. Maybe Nancy's next, but you know, you can't go wrong with the, the greatest player in the, in the modern era being the first to, to get the nod. And, and, you know, looking at what Annika's involved with literally at every level of the game from junior golf, collegiate golf, all the, all the way through the professional ranks, she's intimately involved with all the things that Augusta national, national, you know, that they're trying to do in terms of growing the game with the Augusta national women's amateur and other amateur events around the world. And, and I think having, you know, Annika and Fred Ridley's ear, uh, is, is a good thing. And, and hopefully maybe, maybe we might see some kind of uh, LPGA professional, even if it's just a one-off event, like the Solheim cup or something, wouldn't that be something, you know, maybe, maybe she can start to, to turn the tide a little bit in that direction as well. Beth Ann, are you amazed at Annika's evolution just as a person? She used to be terribly shy even uh, and sometimes at the height of her power, and now she seems to be everywhere. Honestly, one of my favorite guests because her interviews are just compelling and thoughtful as well. Absolutely. I mean, now now she makes a living going around the, the world, inspiring with her words rather than her play, and telling you how she did it and the secrets to her success. And and you know, sometimes I'll just see a, a, a tweet on from the Annika Foundation with a quote from Annika, and and I, I just I just love that because I think that's so important to, to giving back to this next generation is is teaching them what what you've learned the hard way, you know, because there there were a lot of there are valleys in everyone's career, and I and I love that that Annika's willing to talk about those as well, which of course was was being afraid to give a victory speech was, was key among them. And there are a lot of players who are reticent to be a star. We have a lot of reluctant stars even now on the LPGA. And I think, you know, learning from Annika and how she overcame that is really important. Beth Ann, one of our colleagues in the business, another major championship winner in Karen Stupples is dealing with some health issues right now. You wrote about it eloquently in Golf Week. What should the viewers know? Well, you know, we see somebody, uh, you know, inside the ropes or on TV grinding it out, and you really don't know what's going on, you know, behind closed doors. And 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 Karen, throughout this year, was battling Graves' disease and, and didn't know it for the beginning of the year. All of a sudden, she started feeling feeling this nervousness in the pit of her stomach. Everything was moving fast from her words coming out of her mouth to her heart rate. She said she was so weak she couldn't lift a frying pan. You know, she said she felt like her her legs, like as if she'd been doing lunges for hours, you know. And so she she finally was was diagnosed with this hyperthyroid condition. And and then it was this series of hospital stays trying to get her her medicine uh, dosage regulated. There was the, the fear that she might lose her her voice when when she had to have surgery to remove the thyroid and then and then of course uh she was also diagnosed with thyroid eye disease and worried that she might lose her vision so an absolutely terrifying year for karen but you know she's the, one of the strongest people i know one of the kindest people i know and of course she was a, a big bulldog advocate for herself to figure out what she had to do to get everything you know sorted so that she Come back to her job and, and and most importantly the quality of life as, as a mom to logan and a partner to jerry and and then of course on top of all that she lost her mother in july during the u.s women's open she was unable to be there for that historic championship of course wanted to be by her mother's side in her her last days and her mom was a um 
you know, wonderful, kind-hearted mom. Just if, when you know Karen, and then she describes her mom, you're like, okay, that that's where it comes from. And and you know that that's just such a, such a hard thing for for anyone and everyone. But on top of all the health battles that she'd had this year as well, it's just been it's been really tough. But Karen wanted to share her story because she knows there are other people who might be battling with Graves' disease and don't know it or, or similar similar symptoms. And, and actually talking to Pat Bradley, who was diagnosed with Graves' disease in the middle, the peak of her LPGA career, uh, was, was really helpful to Karen. And we certainly wish Karen all the best as she moves forward into better health. You had a, a story also today about Lexi Thompson working with a new coach, Beth Ann. What can you tell us about the timing of when this actually started? It's my understanding that they started working together. This is Lexi and Tony Ruggiero, who's who's worked with a number of PGA Tour pros over the years, uh, that they started working together around the, the British Open this summer, which when you look back on the rise of, of Lexi's uh, career and that she's this this season was just flat out terrible the first half of the year and the second half of the year, completely different player. And that that lines up with her time starting to work with Tony. So I'm sure he played somewhat of a role here in her her recent resurgence. And uh, and I know they were they were working together last week at, at Old Palm getting ready for the Annika event next week here in Florida. See if Lexi can finish the year with a victory. Beth Ann, it's always an education. Your finger is on the pulse of the LPGA in this game. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, folks. Celine Boutier came up through the Epson Tour. Ten Epson Tour players are headed to the LPGA in 2024. We introduce you to one of the grads and learn a little bit more about our biggest golf superstitions when we return. We're back on golf today. The Epson Tour annually awards LPGA Tour membership to the top finishers on its official money list. And that list was finalized at the conclusion of the Epson Tour Championship. It's 10 players graduated to the LPGA Tour starting in 2024. Eamon, let's meet one of the grads. How about Minji Kang, one of three Epson Tour rookies to secure their spot on the LPGA Tour through the 2023 race for the card and is one of three players to earn their card without a win. She played in all 22 events in the 2023 Epson Tour season, finishing in the top 10 a total of eight times. Republic of Korea native will make her LPGA Tour debut in 2024. She was one of nine players to break the $100,000 mark in season earnings. She will be a rookie. She won the 2022 Georgia Women's Amateur Championship and won the 2022 National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics Women's National Championship. And Minji Kang joins us now. Minji, congratulations. You're on your way to the LPGA Tour. What are you most proud of in this accomplishment? Um, oh, thank you. First of all, uh, I couldn't really expect that I could make this in my first year in the Epson Tour as a rookie. Uh, my coach helps me a lot. I cannot put in the world how thank I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm so like proud of myself. Thank to my parents like for all the support. Minji, the top 10 on the Epson Tour make the LPGA Tour. They get their cards. I, I believe you were seventh heading into the final tournament. What was the stress like going into that week? Uh, like, to be honest, uh, actually, I really put uh, my mind down and played the game. I put in a lot of effort to have fun, but I ended up with like good result on my first day. So I try to uh, play comfortably the rest of the game. Minji, I read where you have some very interesting superstitions. You always arrive one hour and 20 minutes before your tea time. 
for example, take us through your routine. What do you do in that one hour and 20 minutes? When I arrive the course, I first go to the practice range and start with stretching and hit the ball for about 40 minutes. And then I move to the chipping green and chip for like 10 to 15 minutes. And then the last, I try to putt like 10 to 15 minutes and then I move to the tee box. Where do you see the most room for improvement when you head on to the LPGA Tour next year? You've obviously put a lot of time into your game, had a lot of success and consistency this year. But when you see mm -hmm. LPGA players, what do you need to do to be at their level for next year? I think um, I need to improve more the, the short games around the green area because there are many different types of grass in the U.S., so I need to learn and study more about the grass and practice. Minji, congratulations. Best of luck in 2024. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Still to come, the PGA Tour has reportedly turned down an investment bid from a major sports entertainment company. What prompted the decision? Rex Hoggart will be here to discuss right after this short break. Back on golf today, the PGA Tour has turned down a bid by Endeavor to form a strategic partnership with the circuit, according to Endeavor's chief operating officer. Endeavor, which owns WWE, the UFC, and various sports agencies, including IMG, publicly expressed interest in a partnership with the tour, and it's not clear if the tour's ongoing negotiations with Saudi Arabia's public investment fund prompted the circuit to turn down the offer. Mark Shapiro, Endeavor president, and COO and a former executive at ESPN said the following, they've officially turned it down. We're big fans of golf and will continue to champion the PGA Tour, but we're not going to be an investor at any level. Our Rex Hoggart joins us now with more. Rex, why would the tour turn this down? Well, the tour declined to comment on the Sportico report from last Friday that the announcement was made. And I think it's interesting to point out, I did talk with one source who's familiar with the different types of negotiations that are going on right now. And they said that negotiations are ongoing right now with not only the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia, but there's <laughs> other investors who are interested as well. And that in this particular case, I, I think it's safe to say the Endeavor deal just wasn't up to snuff of the other deals. One of the things that keeps coming up, everyone I speak to that's involved with this at all talks about player equity. And my understanding is the Endeavor deal didn't have any of that for the player. So it was something of a non-starter. Now, to your point, I've been told by another source that there could be up to six or seven different uh, investment firms, private equity firms, whatever you want to call them, that are interested in getting involved in this as well. So it seems to me the negotiations are further along than maybe we thought, I don't know, a month ago. And certainly it's a little bit more complicated if it's more than the public investment fund. Rex, the framework agreement with the Saudi public investment fund was non-exclusive. So there are really, I guess, three scenarios here. There's the tour with the Saudis. There's the tour of the Saudis and the private money, and there's the tour with the private money. Clearly, it's not going to be just the tour with the public investment fund right now. If you're betting, which way are you leaning? Is it a, a three-person party or two-person party that we're looking at? If I'm a betting man, which I'm not very good at doing that, but if I am a betting man, I'm going to go to a two-person party. And I just kind of say that, having been at the Live event two weeks ago, I, I think I, I was more confident going into that event that the Public Investment Fund and the PGA Tour could come up with some sort of deal. 
after speaking with officials and players, it doesn't sound to me like that they're very optimistic on that side that it's going to happen. So to your point, I think there will be some sort of arrangement between whoever steps in. I think Fenway is the one that's sort of surface as leader in the clubhouse as far as private equity getting involved in the PGA Tour. Again, one source I spoke to talked about how complicated this is. You're talking about private equity, you're talking about the public investment fund of a sovereign nation, and you're talking about an American institution with the PGA Tour and a multi-billion dollar deal, a potential multi-million dollar deal, multi-billion dollar deal. Now, you take all the complexities of that and all the nuances of that, and you add in all the other things that we've had to talk about when it comes to this framework agreement. If you came to some sort of agreement with the Public Investment Fund, you'd have to find some sort of way to allow the players who join Live to sort of come back in into the ecosystem and be welcomed back. You'd also have to find a way to make the players who stayed loyal to the PGA Tour, whatever you want to call whole, if you want to use that word. The complexities of this are just out of this world when you sit and you think about how difficult these negotiations must be. So right now, I would lean towards the PGA Tour coming to some sort of agreement with one of the private equity firms who have joined the party. Well, where does that leave negotiations with the PIF? According to the source I spoke to uh, that has familiar with the, this deal, they're negotiating in good faith. And I think if you just look at the basics of the deal, if you just look at the dollars and cents of it, again, this is billion dollars of money we're talking about, I think they're, they've made some sort of progress on that front. Where things get complicated are the bullet points that I just checked off. Allowing the live players back onto the PGA Tour, making the players who stayed whole again, however it is you're going to do that. But I think those negotiations will continue in good faith is what the framework agreement calls for. And to Eamon's point, the Public Investment Fund would have right of first refusal if there is a definitive agreement. They do not have right of first refusal as it stands right now with the framework agreement. A deal has to get done for the PIF to be able to say, OK, you can take this investment. You can't take that investment. So right now, it's a bit of a free-for-all. A different wrinkle comes up every day. I guess we're going to be talking about this for a long time to come. Thanks, Rex, for the insight.